turn to Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew chapter 5 um, is one of the most famous passages in Scripture uh, because of it being the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> the Beatitudes. Um, and we're not speaking on just Beatitudes today. I think that if we go and we look at Jesus giving this sermon, he's a, I think this is approximately year two of his ministry and uh, he had a three, little over three-year ministry here on earth. And so he had already gone public with his miracles. Uh, he had already trained the disciples now that it, wasn't con- it was continuing. It wasn't complete. Um, but what we see here is we see the crowds start to grow around him. Uh, the Pharisees obviously have been now cued in. They're, they're now... They're now also listening to see what, what he's about. And, and so you have a great mix of people that are following him. Everybody that followed him were not disciples. Everybody that were walking around by the thousands trying to hear what he had to say, they weren't all listening to what he was saying, right? And so we see him come and he arrives here and when he speaks just like the moment he spoke out into the crowd and he said to the crowd hey those of you that have here ears to hear if you're prone to listen if you're seeking for truth pay attention because I'm about to drop that truth on you and that's the kind of group of people so when he speaks he's really speaking to the real seekers and believers in the midst of that crowd right and it was always happening like that. So when he arrives here at the Sermon on the Mount and he speaks out, it says he sees the multitudes. He went up into a mountain in verse 1 of Matthew 5, and it says he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so what he does, he spends verses 3 through 12, and he talks about you're blessed if you're in this condition, but he's not saying you're blessed because you're in that condition, right? Let's, I want to make that very clear. So it's not like we, we're necessarily seeking everything. This, some of these things we ought to be living. But he's speaking to believers here, and he's saying, the blessed are the following categories. And we're going to pick up in another verse. Our, our text verse is, is a little bit later in verse 8. But blessed are these categories, poor in spirit, those that are mourning, those that are meek, those that are seeking or hungering and thirsting after righteousness, those that are merciful, those that are pure in heart, those that are peacemakers, and those that are persecuted. Christ declares this and he says some of these things are things that we are all going to experience at some point or another. You may not be, you may not currently find yourself in the morning spot in this list, but you'll be there one day. Everybody is. You may not find yourself, you may be sort of right now, we ought to always be here. We may find ourselves not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Maybe we're content with where we're at, and this is where Christ uses this entire sermon to say you shouldn't be. <laughs> um, we may sometimes not be merciful. But we should be. Um, We may find ourselves not being a peacemaker or a mediator, but we should be. We may find ourselves 
praise the Lord, not being persecuted. But if you are, it's okay. All right? So not everything in here means the same thing. Not everything in here is something we ought to be doing. Well, yeah, we ought to be meek. We ought to hunger, thirst after righteousness. We ought to be merciful. We ought to be pure in heart. We ought to be peacemakers. But there are some things, mourning, being poor in spirit, which means you're just, man, you're bottomed out. Your barrel's empty. You're dry, right? Or persecuted. Those things aren't something we necessarily, I'm not seeking persecution, Right? Even though Jim Elliott prayed in his journal, and he wrote in his journal, he prayed and asked God for the martyr's crown, one of the five crowns that are mentioned in Scripture by name, and, and Jim Elliott prayed and asked for the martyr's crown, asked to die, which he's asking technically for the very definition of persecution. But when we look at this, when, when you look at being poor in spirit, and Christ isn't saying, hey, you ought to be poor in spirit. Walk around poor in spirit, because if you do, then you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if you're saved and you find yourself in one of these places, you're blessed still, because this is the end game, right? He's saying, if you are sad and you're weeping, if you are bottomed out of the barrel, you just seem to just be beaten down, if you are all of, if, if, you're, if you're weeping, these things, it's okay, you're still blessed if you're my child, because there's one day when you're going to be at the top of this. Right? And then he says, there's also those of you that are meek, that person that's always the wallflower, that person that always wants to go in the back corner, that person that wants to disappear in the crowd and just watch everything, that person that doesn't ever want to be back in front of anybody, guess what? One day, you're going to be screaming praises to God in heaven and you don't care who hears it. And you know what? You're, you're probably looking forward to that day. It's just not you right now. And I get it, right? Those of you that are saved also... If you hunger and you thirst after righteousness, you'll get it. If you're seeking truth you will, here, you will receive truth here. God doesn't play games with us. He's not trying to hide His will from you. We can't always do anything about the external circumstances around us, and Christ spends the entire message over these next couple of chapters talking about that very fact. But what he does say is if you seek the things that my heart wants you to seek, I'll make sure you get it. That Basically what he's saying is let's work together and let's work in tandem, and when you knock and when you ask and when you seek, I'll make sure you get it. But if we're seeking truth, then that means we're approaching it from the next one, two down, being pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure in heart, to me, besides moving past the concept of salvation, which is the only way we can really have a pure heart, is being authentically honest and kind, and that can only happen with a Christian. When we're thinking and engaging people with no outside motive, but complete honesty. Doesn't mean you have to speak to everybody about everything, but it does mean when you do speak, it ought to be honest and clear. No agendas, no strings. And sometimes God says, you know what? Before I can really move in your heart, before you can really grow, you're going to have to get to that point. Any of you that's ever worked a job where you had to take inventory once a year? When I was, everybody hates inventory. 
when I was in college, I worked at Circuit City, which is the equivalent of Best Buy today, and once a year, maybe twice a year, we would do inventory where we'd shut the store down, and we'd have to go in and count the entire warehouse, not just the product, but every different kind of each product, and then we'd have to count the floor, and that way we'd match it up versus what we purchased to match up versus what we sold to find out what our loss was, which was equated to be theft, All right? But we also had track of our numbers. But we had to do an inventory. We didn't go and have Sears come in and count Circuit City. It's not my job to go into your heart and to take inventory of your sin. Now, as a good friend, it is good for me to come alongside somebody and say, Hey, man, can I help you in this area? I see something. This is a danger area. But if you do that, the Bible says in Galatians 6, you need to be spiritual, so you you need to be at a place where you can be spiritually so you can help them. Otherwise, we become what Jesus talked about, like the guy with a giant telephone pole sticking out of his face while he's trying to remove the eye crust out of somebody else's eye. The truth of the matter is there's a time when I don't go and count your sins, but I've got to count mine. I've got to step back. I've got to look at myself. I've got to get along with God. I've got to say, Lord... What is it that I, need, that I need to get right? Because what happens by our very nature as humans, we start putting up layers of innocence around our own sin as if we're not that person. And it doesn't mean that we've got to live our lives in some kind of spiritual depression. It just means that's the true victory of God where we just say, Lord, help me see it so I can make it right and then live above that because that's what God wants out of us. Satan wants you to think that you're always going to be what you always were. That's what Satan wants. He wants you to think that you're going to be the one that failed. He wants you to think that you're going to be... By the way, it's what he... And I, I know Taylor taught on Peter this morning in his class because we were talking about it a little bit before. One of my favorite characters of the Bible. Satan wants you to always think you're the one that denied him three times. Because he, wa- he doesn't want the day of Pentecost to ever happen. You understand what I'm saying? If he can keep you living in your past sin, then your future victory that pours over on other people will never happen. And God knows what's going to happen. Can I tell you some characters? God called Saul, who was a Pharisee, right? God called Lazarus, who was a beggar. God called Peter, who was a fisherman. God called Matthew, who everybody hated because he was a tax collector. God knew the, what he knew common about these people. And I could go on with people that, we didn't, that weren't necessarily in that inner original circle. He called Mary Magdalene, who was a prostitute. He called Lydia, who was a wealthy seller of purple. He called, we could go on and on and on and on and on and on with characters of the New Testament. People who we only know from one or two verses because they helped. Or the people that taught Paul. Or Saul, as it were then. We could go on. And what did God know about these people? And when he put out the call, you, those of you that have ears to hear, listen to what I'm saying. Those of you that are prone, that are seeking truth, I'm about to lay truth out there, and you're about to gobble it up because I know it's what you're looking for, and here's the truth. Those of you that aren't going to hear it, you're not going to hear it anyway, so it doesn't matter. So I'm speaking to the ones that are going to hear it. And that's what Jesus was saying. And so when he called people... When he called them, what was, what was common with these people is that they were true, they were being honest and authentic in their own heart. They were willing to be corrected from what they knew. Lazarus was willing, to put it in today's terms, to not think 
that everybody else was just mean and out for themselves because he had nothing. Saul was willing to accept the fact that God, maybe he did belong to everybody and not just Jews. You've got Pharisees, you've got poor, you've got those that were living righteously, in quote, and you've got those that knew they were nothing near, anywhere near righteous, and all of them ended up being absorbed into the family of God when they accepted Christ as their Savior. Why? Because they had a heart willing to set aside their own preconceived opinion and their own victimhood and their own status, and they laid that aside, and they pursued God. And they pursued Him together. And when you pursue Him together, you become part of a new family. And so Jesus says, blessed, and this is our main text, are the pure in heart. Which gets us to the point of, are you willing to hear what He has to say? You know, in Proverbs 27, 17, the Bible says, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens his friend's countenance. And just like that blade sharpens across that stone and it microscopically knocks off edges of metal, in the middle of that knocking off that friction, knocking off that metal, flaking that off, it makes that edge sharp. As many men in here that have ever played around as a kid with a knife and a sharpening stone and then tried to check the knife out have figured out, I can't tell you how many times I've cut my fingers on sharpened knives. But let me tell you something, that only happens because you've got iron and iron, metal and metal, against each other going opposite directions. Yes, friends, are never going to help you grow. Hard conversations help you grow. Being willing to be proven from Scripture where you need to be corrected or where your opinion was wrong that's a very, very big trait to have to help advance our spiritual growth. We all come in here as a church family, and that's what we are, and we come into this building, and every single one of us have a burden. All the burdens are different, and at different times of our lives, they're different because it's never the same from one week to the next. But every one of us have a different burden. And Paul calls over and over and over and over through the inspiration of God for the unity of the church and refers to us as a family and that we all have different functions to play and we all have different parts that we are. And the truth is, we've got to be the kind of people that can come in and say, it's not about me. It's not about what I have going on. It's about what God wants. It's not even, frankly, it's not even about me thinking it's about someone else. It's about God. And it's about Him alone. And it's about what He wants. And if we will get that in place, then the external and the rest of it will take care of itself. But what we notice is in verses 1 through 12, Jesus starts this off by saying, Hey, all of you that are listening, some of you are persecuted, some of you are weeping, some of you are just bottomed out spiritually at the bottom of the barrel, some of you are seeking for something, some of you currently are having to extend mercy because you owe someone else something, some of you are having to play mediator in your family, some of you are persecuted currently. And on the heels of that, he said, you need to rejoice, and you need to be exceeding glad because great is your reward in heaven. And then he says this, because... 
You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. i got to tell you, when they were over there weeping and mourning and feeling like they were bottomed out, they didn't feel like they were the savoring in a nice meal. They didn't feel like they were a light shining in darkness. If anything, they felt like they had nothing to contribute at some times. <coughs> and Jesus says, you are not only <coughs> blessed, he said, but you are the flavor that this world needs. Yes, hurt Christian, you're the flavor that a lost world needs. Yes, empty Christian, you're the flavor that this world needs. Hebrews chapter 11, we call the chapter the hall of faith, and it talks about a whole list of believers and what they did and how God, how God blessed them and how they had their needs met and how they were persecuted for righteousness' sake. And yet in chapter 12 or at the end of chapter 11 of Hebrews through the inspiration of God, the author of Hebrews says this, These people of whom the world was not worthy. I don't say this out of arrogance or thinking that we are up here as Christians. We know where we're at. But I've got to tell you, because the Spirit of God indwells us and we are vessels of the Lord Jesus Christ and we are temples of the Spirit, the Bible says this lost world around you is not worthy for us to be here. You might say, preacher, I don't feel that way at all. Good. We shouldn't. Because it's not about us. We are the salt of the earth only because we are in the family of God. That's why we became the salt of the earth. And how sad is it as Christians when we don't recognize that opportunity and we no longer have that flavoring. When I was in high school, and I don't think it's been enough years now, I don't think anybody that is remotely affected with this story would, hear, would be watching this. When I was in high school, um, you know, we have a rule in our house. When one of my boys wanted to ask a girl out, they had to call the dad and ask him. The night I told Taylor he had to call Donnie Stevanis was the most funniest night. His eyes just got like this. The night, and if a boy wants to ask my daughters out, they have to come talk to me. All right. So apparently I crossed paths with this girl in high school that um, I wanted to ask her out, and her dad had the same kind of rule. And my dad had the rule too, but her dad had another rule, additional. Not only did you have to ask him, you had to, have come, dinner, had to come to the house to have dinner with the family. And I don't know if they did this on purpose or if it was just like to play a joke on me or if it was genuinely this way. But, you know, I grew up in the South. My mother, my grandmother, the women in my family can cook really, really good. And so I go to this girl's house and I sit down for dinner, which is really awkward. All I want to do is take her out on a date. I had no idea I was going to have to have a family meal. And I sit down. It was the most bland food I've ever had in my life. It was not Kathy's family, by the way. Because I didn't know her in high school, just for the record. And I'm thinking, I'm like, it was like, it was a big meal too. It was like turkey and, and, and dressing and green beans. There was no flavor. And I'm thinking, I didn't want to ask for salt. What do you ask for salt? Because then you're going to insult somebody. So you just eat it and be happy. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm going to leave here. Eat, you know, I'm not really hungry. And then leave and go eat. It was just terrible. I'm used to flavor. I'm a savory kind of guy when it comes to food, right? Let me tell you something. This world without Christians, 
the world thinks, the lost world thinks it can offer the flavor of life. And the truth is, without the Spirit of God inhabiting His children on this planet, there is no flavor. You wait till the rapture takes place and see what this world looks like without the Holy Spirit's presence being here. And it's not us so much that's the salt of this earth as a spirit that's inside of us. But the problem is, if we're not walking in the Spirit, then the effects of the Spirit are limited. And that means our flavoring is... God can do what He wants to do, but He uses us, Right? And so we're supposed to be the salt of the earth and also the light of the world. And the concept of being the light of the world, let me tell you, darkness, which we're celebrating longer days now, darkness is not something you turn on. It's not like you go into a room, you're like, you know, it's too bright in here. Hand me the darkness, the darkness device. I'm going to turn the darkness device on. You can't even call it a flashlight. You, call it, you can't call it a darkness light. So you bring it in, it's, hand me the darkness device. I'm going to open it up and darkness spews out everywhere. No, you take away the light and the darkness is here. That's why we're called the light of the world, because we have the Spirit of God inside of us. And if you know the Word of God, then you can bring the truth of God to a blind, lost, destitute, barren, flavorless world. And that's our purpose That's the purpose of the church. That's the purpose of the individual Christian. And he says to us in verse 13, you're the salt of the earth. After the beginning, look, those of you that are all these things, hey, you're the salt and the light. You're blessed. Rejoice. And then he goes on to say, look, for those Pharisees that are in here that think I'm attacking the law, hey, the law is still here. It's alive and well. In fact, he said, think not, verse 17, that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so, you get, if, there, if there was a Pharisee in the crowd, that Pharisee's got to be sitting back thinking, okay, I'm on board with that. Law's still here. I'm still important. My rules still apply. You can't pluck that hair out of your head because it's work on Saturday. All my extra stuff I've added to the Bible, that's still important. And then Jesus says, hey, the law's still here. I didn't come to destroy it. And by the way, can I say this? If a person's lost today, they're still bound under the law. And guess what they'll never do? Fulfill the law. Ever. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in verse 20, I say unto you that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Wow. So that Pharisee sitting back thinking, okay, he's, he's still with the law here, it's still here. And then Jesus says, in fact, I'll tell you this, unless you are more righteous than the Pharisees, you can't go to heaven. And what he meant by that was, hey, Pharisees, you're not righteous enough to go to heaven. (laughs) And let me tell you, that's why they hated him, and they wanted to kill him, and they ground their teeth against him. Why? Because their whole world, from the time of the closure of the book of Malachi, the 400 silent years until the birth of Jesus Christ, you had a time frame there where these Pharisees and the the religious elite of Israel were allowed to start developing and laying layer upon layer on the law with their own law until finally Christ came on the scene and he said, I came and fulfilled it. I've completed it. It's done. I've brought it full circle. There's no need that what you added is dead. And that's when they tried to get upset with him and they tried to throw all these accusations against him. 
And he said, that's when he said, if you've offended in one point, you've offended in all the law. That's when he was saying, you think. And that's when he switched gears and he went in and said, unless you are more spiritual. And from from chapter 5, verse 21, all the way to chapter 6 in verse 7, he sits there and he goes at all of these different things that the Pharisees could then hear. Because here's the thing. If, if we gave, just like the rich young ruler went to Jesus, hey, hey, what, is it, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? How can I place myself in a position to warrant getting eternal life? That's what, and Jesus said you can't. You can't. That's basically how to sum it up. And he walked away sad, and Christ is saying, you know, the point is, you, you think you, you're resting in your possessions, you're resting in your opportunity, your ability. And let me tell you something, he goes on and, and he takes these men who had been checked, if I gave us a checklist today, and I said, hey, everybody in this room, I know we came to church today, but we've discovered something in the Bible, and it's a checklist of things that you can know that you're going to heaven. Check off these things. And you're like, okay, and you're going to take that list, it's going to be like a scavenger hunt. You're going to be going all through the world, man. You're going to be checking off box after box after box. And when you get that thing done, I am done. I know it now. Why? Because my humanity was able to put my fingers and pens and paper and touch things. And now I can see it with my own hands because I did it. And the Bible says my righteousness is as filthy rags. The Bible says Cain's offerings wouldn't be accepted because he brought vegetables and fruit when he was supposed to bring the blood of the lamb. Why? Because the, blood, the lamb had to die. Cain couldn't do anything. And we could go on and on and on with that example. And so Jesus, understanding that the Pharisees had all this list that they thought they were accomplishing. Yeah, I'm not murdering anybody. Yeah, I'm not doing this. Yeah, I'm not doing that. And Jesus speaks out knowing that there were people because he read thoughts and minds. He heard people's thoughts. Just like the lame man that got lowered down into the house and he looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven when the lame man didn't even ask it. So we know he at least thought it when Christ made that comment that he could hear the Pharisees in other instances that were waiting in the temple because they were hoping that he would heal a leper. And Jesus heard their thoughts and turned around and spoke directly to them about their thoughts. And so with that understanding, he said, hey, you guys have heard in verse 21, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill but whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the, of, of the judgment. But I say, whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. He said, you've heard it said you can't murder. I'm going to say, hey, if you hate someone to the point you, you, just, you get that enmity against them. He said, I say you've already murdered them in your heart. Hey, you say, I don't lust after a woman. Or I, I haven't committed adultery with a woman. I've been faithful to my wife. Jesus said, yeah, he knows their thoughts. He knows their hearts. He knows where their eyes go. He said, hey, guys, let me tell you something. He's saying, if you have looked on them to lust after them, you've already committed adultery with them. And let me tell you something. He wasn't saying, hey, guys, you have to have a mental perfection to enter heaven. That's not what he was saying. He wasn't saying it was okay to lust either. What he was saying was, Hey guys, you think you're checking off a perfect box, you can't because none of you are perfect. And there's only one righteousness that any of us can have, and that is found in the Lord, in Jesus Christ, in me, and a sacrifice that's going to happen on the cross. That's the only salvation we can find. What he was saying was, you think you're clean enough, and you're not. You think you can check the box off, but you can't. 
Because that box is not just one simple box. Under that box, there's a whole lot of other boxes that have to do with that one box. And you've got to check off all those, and you don't even know what some of them are. Because you can't do it on your own. That's what he was saying. He says, you've been told that you shouldn't, that you should not forswear thyself or swear to me to someone else and, and, and swear to me that you're going to do something. He said, you can't swear by my name. You can't summon me. You can't summon God to work on your behalf. And you certainly don't even have the power to change one hair of your head from black to white or white to black. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say, resist not evil. Whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. You've heard it said, love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. I say, love your enemies. Back to that other one, resist not evil. you got two things. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist not evil. Which one's true? They're both true. Resist the devil is you walk away, you say no to temptation, you say no to sin. Resist not evil in that particular case meant, hey, don't live your life trying to set up and orchestrate and avoid negative people and bad things happening to you because those things are going to happen because it's the world we live in. And Christ throughout this entire passage is saying, don't let your circumstances rule your life. Don't live under them. Don't live under someone else's mental oppression of you and don't certainly live under your own. Because when you allow your job, your spouse, your house, your friends, what mythical thing you think your reality is somewhere else, when you allow those things to distract you or to make you go inward and feel sorry for yourself, the Lord says, that's not your place. Live life. Live life in love with me and quit worrying about everything else around you. That's what he's saying over and over and over again. You're always going to have people that use you. You're always going to have people that are going to take advantage when they have the chance. It doesn't mean I've got to put myself in that place every time, but it also doesn't mean that, it also doesn't mean that, I, just, that I just shut them down and, and cast that person out. Let me tell you something. When Paul was going with Titus to the island of Crete, he told Titus, he said, hey, Titus, remember, this island is full of a bunch, bunch of drunkards and slow bellies. King James for slow belly, I guess, I guess a slow belly is just a bunch of lazy islanders. That's what he was telling them. And then what did he say? But such were we. Now, let me tell you, you can look at Saul's past. Saul was not a drunkard and a slow belly. Right? He was not a lazy drunk. But yet he told Titus, so were we. What was he telling him? Titus, the island of Crete is full of a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. But so were we. Saul was a go-getter, but he was persecuting Christians. <laughs> he was a go-getter for the wrong things. So what we need to understand is in the midst of people persecuted, the midst of negative circumstances, negative circumstances of life always happen because of outside personalities and people. Sometimes inside, sometimes us. But it's always, it's always some human, right? Who's to say that maybe God's not bringing us into their orbit so we can impact them for righteousness? 
Who's to say that God isn't saying, hey, instead of being mad and upset and constantly irritated with a certain person, or instead of having an outlook that is completely negative, why don't we arm up spiritually, have be the spiritual adult, and take the spiritual truth of God's Word to the life of that person? And he goes on, and he says this, and this is where we're going to close. And then the Sermon of the Mount goes on and on and on, and I'm just doing a quick overview of massive parts of it. But when you get to chapter 6, it says this, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. And then move on down to verse 7, But when you pray, even, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. And what he's saying is, well, we're dealing with sin, we get that. Now let's deal with our spiritual side. Don't make your spiritual journey with God another thing to put a feather in your cap so people think more of you. Because if that's what we're doing spiritually, then we're wasting our time. Because that, at that point, it, we become like Saul, who was abiding by, we become like a Pharisee. The same people we say we don't like, we become because we are checking off the external body. We may even be saved. It's possible for a saved person to flaunt their savedness. And I'm not talking about before the lost world. Our problem is not so much that we flaunt it before the lost world, as we try to flaunt it in front of other Christians. And the thing is, when he says this particular thing, it's, there's nothing wrong with praying in front of people. What he's saying is when you go and, and you are trying to make a show before him so people think you're more spiritual. By the way, we have a big problem with that in a lot of churches today. They have supposedly these gifts from God that are all people sitting back and they're thinking, oh, what a spiritual entity is happening right now. What a phenomenal blessing. That person's so mighty close to God. Nothing that God gives us to work in our life should ever be something to where it is obviously pointing to us. It should always be pointing to God. In every case and at every moment. And when he says this, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do. If you want to see somebody pray the same litany prayer all the time, go into the temple of Diana because they're going to pray the same thing every day. I told a class the other day, I said, you know, some people, the only prayer they know is, uh, now lay me down to sleep, I'll pray the Lord my soul to keep, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And that's all they know. And you may say, well, there's nothing wrong with teaching that to a kid to learn how to pray. Well, that's true, but at some point you've got to grow past that. God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for this food. Let me tell you something. And I told them, I said, what if, we talk to our, what if we talk to our parents that way? I told a group of kids this. What if we talk to our parents that way when we get up every day? Thank you, Mommy, for the food. Thank you for the breakfast. Now take me to school every day. Thank you. And then you pick you up from school at the end of the day. Can I have some food, please? Can you take me to McDonald's? That would be wonderful. Thank you. I love you. <laughs> if your kid talked to you that way, you'd be like, what is wrong with you, weirdo? <laughs> That's not a relationship. What if I look at Kathy every day? I love you so much. Every, and I said the same words every single day at the same exact time, the same moment, and nothing else was ever discussed. That's not a relationship. Why don't you just talk to Jesus? Just have a conversation. And I said, I don't know how to pray. Do you know how to talk? Because if you know how to talk to somebody, then you can pray, because that's all it is. Pray to God riding down the road with your eyes open. 
Pray to God by your bed with your, with your knees on the floor at night. Pray to God laying in the bed with your head on your pillow. You know, I'll fall asleep. Good, who cares? That's a great way to fall asleep. My point is, talk to him. When you need to talk to him, talk to him. Otherwise, what are we doing? And what we have is we have all these externals, but we don't have a relationship. We need to start working on the relationship, and all of these other things he's talking about are going, to take, are going to happen. They're just going to take place, and this is what Christ is telling us. He's saying, hey, you've got, I understand this world is going to absolutely beat you up. I get it. But you are salt, and you are light, and I've got a purpose for you, and you need to live at a deeper level. And that's what he's telling us. And to do that, we have to have a heart that is transparent and honest with him. And if that's what we do, then it will be transparent and honest with everybody else. We need to get it with him.